Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome back to a new episode of the Aranax podcast. And in this episode, we have a quick look at what's been happening in Europe with plans to bring shipping into the region's emissions trading scheme, a move that will force nearly all ship operators to pay to emit greenhouse gas emissions, and we'll also touch on the continued and thorny issue of methane slip. I'm Craig Eason, Editorial Director of Fathom World, event moderator and podcast producer and host. First, a little recap about the ETS. It's not new. It was launched in Europe in 2005 and has developed through a series of changes or phases. The discussions in Brussels are ongoing about phase four, and in reality they should have been agreed in 2021, but delayed because of the COVID pandemic. The amendments are also aligned to be part of the region's Fit for 55 package, meaning that they will help the region achieve the 55% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, thus aligning action with the objectives of the Paris Agreement. So drawing shipping into the ETS will mean that vessel operators get allowances under what is called a cap-and-trade mechanism every year. This means an installation such as a vessel or a power station or heavy industry plant will get allowances to emit a certain amount of greenhouse gas emissions annually. If it emits more, it needs to buy allowances, which it can buy. If it emits less, then it can trade or sell off the extra allowances. The price of the allowance is the price of carbon. The European Union plans on tightening emissions by constantly issuing less and less allowances, and under the Fit for 55 this will be a much steeper drop. The inclusion of shipping into the ETS is one of four key shipping-related proposals that are currently under the Fit for 55 package. The three others are the Fuel EU Maritime Directive, which will have a significant impact on greenhouse gas emissions intensity accounting, the revised Fuels Infrastructure Regulations, which will see member states make LNG infrastructure available, amongst other things, and a revision of Europe's Energy Taxation Directive, which will, for the first time, put a minimum tax price on heavy fuel oil used in intra-EU voyages. I'll put links to more information about these in the show transcript on Fathom World. Now back to the ETS. Last week's vote on the amendments on the ETS were in the European Parliament's Environmental Committee, full name, the Committee on the Environment, Public Health and Food Safety. The vote was on amendments to the draft ETS changes from the European Commission. These have now been agreed and the changes will go to the European Parliament's plenary meeting for a final vote in the beginning of June. Then comes what some groups are critical of, and that is the discussion between the Commission, the Parliament and the European Council of Ministers. This is behind closed doors, as is most of the Council work, something the Green Lobby Group Transport and Environment calls an affront to democracy. Once these changes have been agreed, it's expected that EU member states will put the changes into their own rules. This means shipping is set to be into the ETS in a year and a half, by January 1st, 2024, but it will mean accounting may have to begin as early as January the 1st next year. Luckily, one may say, shipping has already been subject to the MRV regulations collecting data on emissions, so may be able to adapt more easily. But there are some key elements in the amendments agreed by the Environment Committee that ship operators need to know. 
Here's a short rundown of some of them. One is that it's the ship operator, the entity paying the fuel that is responsible for ETS compliance, not the ship owner. The second is that methane is included, which may mean that methane slip remains a hot topic. N2O is also included, and a clause in the text calls on assessment of other gases and particulate matter to be considered by the end of 2024. Thirdly, while the agreement is on vessels of 5,000 gross tonnes and over, smaller vessels will be introduced from 2027, when the size limit drops to 400 gross tonnes. The fourth point I want to make is on the scope. 100% of emissions between intra-European voyages are covered, but initially only 50% of voyages to and from non-EU member ports. That's going to change on January the 1st, 2027, when all voyages will be subject to calculations. The fifth point I'm making is that the recognition of other trading schemes around the world and working with them to cover shipping more globally. That means that if America or other countries, Australia, for example, have emissions trading scheme, there will be correlation between them. There's also the acknowledgement of the work at the IMO, though there is recognition of its slow pace. Sixth point relates to recognising the temptation for some ship operators or others to use what are they calling evasive ports, where goods may be transshipped via non-EU ports to reduce the accountable legs. A seventh point to mention is the creation of a European Ocean Fund. This fund will be where a significant amount of the money raised by shipping that's going to be collected in the ETS will be support the whole decarbonisation of shipping. It will also help with what are called contracts of difference or carbon contracts of difference. Some of the money will also be focused on non-EU states, notably developing countries and small island states needing help with mitigation. Another point about the European Ocean Fund is the ability for smaller vessel operators and responsible entities of vessels making infrequent calls into European ports to pay directly into the fund rather than have the bureaucratic hassle of being issued allowances and having to trade them. Now I mentioned the concerns about the Council of Ministers about the opaque nature of the discussions about how the ETS is going to be developed and we'll touch on that in a minute with transport and environment. But first, with the ETS likely to impact shipping, I spoke to Norwegian ship owner and operator Odviel Tankers. This is a company operating parcel tankers around the world on complex trades. One vessel may have 20 or so different cargo owners and a voyage will consist of many different legs. Here's what Oyston Jensen, Odfjell's chief sustainability officer, told me. Yes, uh, and uh, it was uh, in, in, in the proposal or sort of the updates uh, that came out of the committee on the 17th of May. Uh, it was a, it, what was good there, it was, it was a clarity uh, with regards to responsibility, whether it's the uh, commercial operator or, or, or the unit that's responsible for the fuel compared to the ship owner that was in the original uh, original proposal. So what we are doing is that we are building a system or preparing uh, our ability to report on the carbon footprint uh, of all the products. We do that uh, independent of the, of the EU uh, because there's a lot of customers that want to know the footprint, as, uh, as, as I've stated earlier, uh, that they want to know the footprint of their product. And, um, and uh, so we are preparing uh, to report on this, and that will be connected into the 
where we need to buy allowances for the for the different uh, products and the different transportation uh, that, that that we need to do. In details, how that's going to be managed, that's not really clear uh, yet. So, so we are preparing for this now, uh, and we will pre- we will continue uh, preparing the reporting. So for us, it will be a, almost like a pass through cost. Uh, so, so the customer they will get their uh, transportation uh, fee and the the cost of that of the transportation, and there will be a, a invoice on the on the, the allowances uh, required for that transportation. So, in detail, how that's going to be done? Then we are we are looking into our all our IT systems and reporting systems in order to collect these data and provide them to to our customers. Uh, so, it, it's going to be tight. Uh, it uh, is closing in on on first of January. But we need to prepare for that uh, to set aside certain allowances to, to, to pay the EU from 2024. So that's Oddfield Tanker's Chief Sustainability Officer, Oyston Jensen. The current status of the ETS amendments is that the Parliament plenary will discuss them when it meets in early June. Then the discussions go to a tripartite meeting between the Commission, which wrote the proposals, the Parliament, which voted on, amended it and voted on it, and the Council of Ministers, which is a body of relevant ministers from national governments of the EU member states. This is where the lobby group Transport and Environment has concerns, no doubt buoyed by the outcome of the Environment Committee votes. It remains, however, cautious about the final discussions. And it also explains why it published last week a ranking of EU member states on their shipping decarbonisation commitment. There's a link in the transcript to this podcast on Fathom World, but the ranking is of the 21 EU member states with shipping concerns. It excludes France, because France is the current president of the council and theoretically takes no position. TNE ranked the countries based on what it believes are its known statements, attempts to derogate some of the clauses in the regulation, namely to ensure that some of its fleet is exempt from joining the ETS. It makes interesting reading. Top of the list is Sweden, bottom of the list is Greece. Here's Faig Abazov, transport and environment shipping expert. There are a number of reasons why we normally do rankings like this. Um, number one is to bring transparency to the process. Uh, commission proposal is public, it's transparent, we know what is in there. A European Parliament proposal is very transparent. Every time there is a suggestion for amendment, it is public. You know exactly, as a citizen, you can go onto the website, you can see. When it comes to council, council is an affront to democracy because of its opaque decision-making process. You have no idea what's happening behind the scenes. And only after the decision is made, and it is discussed with the parliament and the commission at the end, can you receive some information informally, you know, who pushed what? We're trying to bring transparency to this process. Um, So the EU member states should be very clear, should be very transparent and open about their position. And with the transparency, we're putting them on the spotlight so that they cannot hide behind the council closed doors and that by putting their positions out in the public and ranking them against other member states, we want to um, to increase political pressure on them domestically as well as internationally so that they shift their position towards a more ambitious position. When I look at the look at the list in terms of the the ambition score, 
while there's maybe not so much of a surprise in terms of how the ranking is, when you, when you look at the various get-out clauses, if you like, that member states have, have put in, do you see that being a collective disappointment from your point of view? Mm-hmm. What, as a start, I would say that every tonne of CO2 is one tonne too much. As a result, any kind of exemption, whether small or big, is unacceptable. That being said, you can always categorize exemptions on the the basis of how much damage they are giving. At the beginning of the process, at the start of the process, we were a bit worried that there will be strong push for exemptions on the geographical scope, which our ranking indicates that there is pretty much no push, there is no support to reduce the geographical scope of application of ETS, which is great. But there are other exemptions, which are not only climate perverse, but also unnecessary. For example, one exemption, uh, exempting ice class vessels from uh, the full application of ETS. You're looking at the countries who are pushing for those exemptions, for example, notably Finland, and then you're comparing it to the national objectives of Finland. Finland wants to fully decarbonize its economy by 2035, yet it's trying to get exemptions for ice-class vessels. But ice-class vessels are part of your economy. Why you are treating just one part of the shipping differently from the rest of your economy? Um, It doesn't make sense for us. And also in total, we have quantified, we have put numbers next to it, how much CO2 is going to or CO2 equivalent is going to exempt. If I'm not mistaken, off the top of my head, it's about 8 million tons of CO2. 8 million tons of CO2 over eight years, this is not insignificant amount. We believe that should be avoided. Um, There are many others, and in total, um, they could amount to significantly higher level of CO2 being exempted over the eight years of application of ETS. Peg Abasov from Transport and Environment. Feg also told me that TNE remains concerned about the inclusion of LNG, liquid natural gas, as a viable fuel, although he improves of the inclusion of methane in the current ETS provisions. LNG is a fossil hydrocarbon, and when used as a marine fuel, of course, still produces CO2 emissions. The other issue that TNE continues to campaign about is methane slip. This is the unburned fuel, which is largely made up of methane that gets emitted into the atmosphere through the funnel. Here in Rotterdam, Europe's biggest port, the team is using a state-of-the-art infrared camera to investigate methane slips from supposedly green ships. Here, every day, ships come and supply us with goods for our everyday life. More and more ships are being powered... That's a clip from TNE's recent methane slip campaign, where they used an infrared camera to capture emissions images from at least two dual-fueled vessels as they were manoeuvring in the port of Rotterdam in November last year. The claim is that the infrared images show distinct methane plumes coming from the ship's emissions. The video has, however, been slammed as sensationalist by CLNG, the multi-stakeholder lobby organisation promoting the use of LNG in shipping. What we've seen is, is, is what they've published, which is uh, sort of pictures which veer on the side of sort of sensationalism, and they make a, a range of claims that the images indicate high levels of methane slip, but they don't provide any quantification. This is Steve Essau, CLNG's Chief Operating Officer. 
they mention a peer-reviewed report, but they don't give access to it. So it's uh, we don't know what they're really, you know, what the what what they're citing. Uh, and you know, for example, and there's no no indication of the operating conditions of the vessels. You know, what operational mode they're in. So it's 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 a statement which is not backed up with any evidence. So it's very difficult to engage with that. While there was criticism about the publication of video without data, Fague defended the work, saying the objective from t e was to keep awareness of the problem of methane slip and to push for independent quantitative measurements. We have achieved the goal. We rendered visible what was invisible until that point. When you go to discussions um, with the shipping industry, policymakers, or especially engine manufacturers and those who promote LNG, they say, well, methane slip it was a problem of the past. It no longer exists. We showed that on a brand new ship that was built in 2020, that methane slip is there. Now, how much methane slip was there? We did not quantify it. And we were very transparent in our publication that we did not have access to the vessel. Uh, our job was to, to demonstrate it exists so that the quantification can be allowed uh, as a next step. Now, we have since learned that ICCT has launched a campaign to do exactly that. To go on board of a vessel with the permission, obviously, of the, of the, of the shipping company uh, to fit uh, continuous emissions monitoring devices to be able to uh, monitor the methane slippage coming out of the stack and also to have the drones uh, flying above the plume to be able to to capture what's coming up there and then calibrating the drone via the emissions monitoring systems. Um, I think it, it did achieve its goal. We demonstrated there is a problem and somebody needs to go and, uh, and measure it. We are also looking into the possibilities of measuring it ourselves too. And if any of the promoters of LNG disregard our findings, then at the very least, they should create the opportunities for us to go on those vessels and to measure it and to show it to them. While disregarding our findings and not allowing us to get on the vessel and measure it, you know, it speaks of, of, a, of a guilty, how to say, uh, attitude of uh, guilty position. Guilty conscience? Guilty conscience, I think it's a, it's a better word, yes. If you want to step back from this and you're fundamentally concerned about the climate impact of shipping, probably where you'd want to start from is where is most of that fuel burned and then the what operating cycles. So 70 to 80% of the fuel, as I'm sure you're aware, is burned in a deep sea shipping space where you've got massive two-stroke engines operating at optimal um, capacity. So that's where you need to measure the emissions <laughs> if you're really serious about it and i know that's a challenge i can't say to transport environment jump on a ship and go measure it but there are um <laughs> i'm not sure how welcome they would be in reality or uh, well, how welcome anyone would be um but the there are some ongoing projects now to actually do exactly that is to measure the um, uh, emissions um, from uh, these big two-stroke engines operating through, throughout their full operational cycle to get a true pic picture of total emissions. And I think that that sort of information is going to be published. I would imagine, I know there's one study that was um, done by 
Queen Mary and Westfield College, which is on the verge of being published. And I think there's a another study that's been announced that should publish in about 18 months. So there, there you'll see a true picture of the, uh, the emissions. But despite the efforts of Transporting Environment and others to point at what they call the dead end of LNG, with the risks of what they're calling stranded assets, and the focus on methane slip and the increased effort to totally decarbonise the shipping industry, the number of dual-fuelled LNG vessels is increasing. But as shipping waits to see how the ETS, the Fuel EU Maritime, the Fuel Tax Directive Amendments, the amendments to the Port Infrastructure Requirements, how the CII, how the EEXI, how the discussions about mid- and long-term requirements at the IMO progress, including the life cycle assessments of fuels, and whether the IMO will take a well-to-wake perspective or a tank-to-wake view to regulations progress. However they progress, it all points to big changes. Regardless of whether you agree or not with the use of LNG as a transition fuel, I think Steve Essow made a clear point about what shipping needs to think about or keep in mind. So we're moving from a fossil fuel world to a world that's going to be powered by um, renewable electricity in, 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 in many cases. Um, but at the moment, ammonia is a fossil fuel effectively. It's all, well, most ammonia is produced from natural gas. Methanol, most of it's produced from natural gas. LNG is arguably also produced from natural gas. So you're all starting from a natural gas feedstock and you're all ending up in the same place, which is a synthetic fuel, be it synthetic methanol, synthetic ammonia or synthetic LNG, methane, which is produced from renewable electricity and electrolysis. So 80, 70, 80% of the cost of producing all those fuels is the cost of producing hydrogen. So um, each of those fuels has a similar decarbonisation pathway. Steve Esso from CLNG, before him Feig Abasov from Transport and Environment, representing two opposing views on the role of LNG as a fuel in the shipping industry. Before them, Oysten Jensen from Odfjall on preparation for the entry of shipping into the emissions trading scheme, a move that will mean that LNG-powered ships may need to count their methane slip emissions. I'm Craig Eason from Fathom World, where I try and keep you updated on the changing regulatory, technological and social changes in our shipping, maritime and ocean space. Sign up for our regular newsletter and keep yourself updated. This is the Aronex podcast. Please like it, please share it with your colleagues and friends, and please come and listen to the next episode. Goodbye until then.